Today, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to maybe one of the most popular verses in all of the New Testament, maybe in all of the Bible. It's the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Can you guess what verse? Good guess. Verse 16. <clears throat> I thought you might know it. John 3, 16. We're going to get ready to light the candles on this Advent wreath. We've only got two candles left to light. On Christmas Eve, we're going to light the one in the middle. It's the Christ candle. But today, we're going to light all four of these candles that stand. And we began a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, with the first candle. And this is the hope candle. And the Advent season tells us that we have hope. You got to remember that there were people that were believing in hope before Christ was born too. Have you read Hebrews 11? It talks about those who all died in the faith believing. See, what hope does is hope tells you about a reality that your circumstances haven't yet communicated. Anybody have hope today? <laughs> Looking at some stuff going, it's not working the way I thought it would work, but I hope. <laughs> I have confidence. I, I've, got, I've got a conviction that says there's something that is more enduring than what I'm experiencing. That's hope, and our hope has a name. His name is Jesus, and Yes, he came and fulfilled the hope of salvation to the world, but we still have hope today. And we light this candle in remembrance of that reality. And then the second week, we lit the candle of peace. And this peace is the fulfillment of a promise. Jesus, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, is our peace. Aren't you glad that we can have peace today in Christ? I pray that you felt that as we, as we worshiped, as we declared his death, burial, and his resurrection. And we lifted up praise to God. We sang about him coming. God comes to give you peace. He wants to meet you today and bring you his peace. But not just peace. God wants to give you joy. And so last week, we lit the rose-colored candle. This one stands out as joy often does. There's an uptick in our mood when we talk about joy. And I know this, that joy is not part and parcel with the holidays. Just because we put lights on the house and bring a tree indoors doesn't mean joy shows up. How many of you know it's not that easy? Some of us have to contend for joy. We have to fight to have our joy. Last weekend, at the end of the service, I shared a scripture that I believe is a timely word for some of us, and it says this. The joy of the Lord is our strength. There's so many people that feel like if I were stronger, I could have joy. I, I just, I need to try harder. I need to, be, I need to be more committed. I need to be more focused. I need to have a, a positive mental attitude. But can I tell you today that you don't have to be strong to get joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And God wants to give you that joy today to undergird you, to help you. And so today, we're going to light one more candle, and it's the love candle. But before we do, I want you to look at this verse with me in John chapter 3, verse 16. It says this. In fact, let's all read it together out loud. You can put it on the screen. John 3, 16. Are you ready? Okay, me and, me and Ron are going to read it together. <laughs> are you ready? I'm a talkback preacher, y'all. Come on. You should know this about me. I get nervous when you get quiet. All right, let's read it. For, for God so loved the world that he gave that whoever shall not perish 
Maybe there's not a, a more concise presentation of the gospel in all of scriptures than that one right there. That one verse that communicates what the gospel is. Can I tell you what love does? Love gives. God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. That's what love <clears throat> that's what love does. And this whole Advent season, our heart's desire in this series has been that we wouldn't just talk about how Christ came, or we wouldn't even just talk about the reality that Christ is coming someday again, but that we can recognize that Christ is coming even now, that love has come. And when love comes, it doesn't wait for opportune circumstances. Love doesn't say, if you'll get your act together, I'll love you. Love gives. And so God demonstrated his love for us. Romans 5, 8 says, in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, the love of God brought Christ into the messy middle of your life. In, in, into the, the chaos, into the confusion, into the rebellion, into the godlessness and the idolatry of a world who wasn't looking for a savior. <clears throat> Love gave. And so as we were preparing for this day and for this thought, I was praying about a practical expression of that love. What does it really look like for love to come? And I thought about human life services, the pregnancy center in York that is meeting people on a daily basis in the messy middle of their life story. People don't show up at the door of human life services with everything figured out. They show up with questions. They show up with confusion. They show up with uncertainty about where they've been, about where they're going. They don't have it all put together, but it doesn't matter how they show up. They're met with love. And so I called my friend, Laura Abel, who's the director of Human Life Services, and I said, Laura, would you come today, and would you just communicate to us as a church what love looks like right here in our own community? And so I want to invite her to come now to share with us for a few moments, and I want you to put your hands together and make her welcome as she comes. Thank you, Pastor Aaron. It's such a pleasure being here. I feel like I'm home. I told everyone in the first service, my soon-to-be 91-year-old father grew up in this church. So this is truly like coming home. He was born and raised for his first 12 years on Front Street. And uh, I know it wasn't Wrightsville Assembly of God 91 years ago, but it was a Pentecostal church. And uh, truly, I feel like I'm I'm home and I love being here. I'm a good old-fashioned AG girl for my whole life, so just love being here. Well, you know, what better time for someone from a pregnancy center to come than at Christmas time when the greatest unplanned pregnancy of all times happened? Isn't that awesome? I just I I just am always amazed at what God uses to bring himself glory. And the unplanned pregnancy was it. Now, I'm sure that in this room full of people, there are probably some of you who have experienced, either personally or a relative or a friend, you've experienced a surprise pregnancy. 
Sometimes they call it an oops, you know. But sometimes it is a surprise, totally unexpected. And, you know, most of us, if you've been in this room and you've experienced that, although maybe it wasn't good to start out with, the result, the child that resulted from that pregnancy, you would just never trade that now. But at the time, it was a shock. And, but after the shock, you got over it. You figured out how you were going to plow through and somehow make this work. And it happened. But what if you were pregnant, but you were a victim of domestic violence? Living in that. That was your world. What if your boyfriend abandoned you when you told him that you were pregnant? What if you never knew an intimate physical relationship with a man outside of the context of rape? So you really didn't know. What if you were a Christian, but you chose a bad relationship and you ended up pregnant? Did you know that one in six women who have had abortions identify themselves as born-again Christians? One in six. Well, all those situations I just told you about are situations that we have encountered at Human Life Services every day and more. Messy situations, as Pastor Aaron talked about. And it's so easy to judge that person who's contemplating an abortion. But we are called to walk alongside that woman. We're called alongside her to be that life-affirming coach and mentor and cheerleader and to bring together resources in our community, and there are many, to help her through that pregnancy and beyond, to walk with her during that pregnancy, to teach her how to take care of herself when she's pregnant and to give her parenting programs to take advantage of. We're called to be that good Samaritan. You remember that story in the Bible, right? How the Samaritan uh, ministered to that man that was beaten, lying half dead on the side of the road. That Samaritan ministered to that man who was bleeding and dying, not after he asked all the questions like, how did you get yourself into this mess? What did you do? What did you do to deserve that beating? Maybe you deserved it. Maybe you weren't the victim that it appears you are. No. He put that man on his donkey, took him to the inn, paid for that man to recover and be brought back to health. And by the way, it's not just women we minister to. It's men as well. We minister to couples. In fact, about 15% of our clients are men. Just a little stat. But what if somebody already made an abortion decision? Hmm. Did you also know that one in five pregnancies in the United States will end up in an abortion? Three out of ten women will have an abortion by the time they are 45 years of age. The guilt, the shame, the secrecy that surrounds this decision is debilitating. The secrecy that women often live with 
In my 10 years as director of Human Life Services, I wish I could tell you of all the instances where even after a service like today, speaking at a church, women have come up to me and couldn't even breathe the word. They'd just come up to me and say, I did that. I have that in my past. A woman sat across from me in my office. She was in her early 60s and she said, 41 years ago, I made that decision. And she just sobbed, and she, she said, I've never been able to forget it. Born-again Christian woman, active in her church, carrying a secret for 41 years. Well, Human Life Services also ministers to women in that situation through our post-abortion ministry. They're suffering deep spiritual and emotional pain. And we have a post-abortion ministry and use uh, a book that's called Surrendering the Secret, written by a a born-again woman who um, herself went through an abortion. I was going to bring uh, one of the women who came through our ministry uh, as a post-abortion client, and she now helps us to serve in that ministry. Her name is Maria, and she had had an abortion, and she was going to be with me here today but had a family emergency But I'm going to read her testimony to you. And this is so typical of the things that we hear from women who have made that choice. She says, I was 20 years old and living in my boyfriend's parents' home. My dad had passed away the year before, and my mom was married to the man that had sexually abused me. I had just won a full scholarship for the community college, and I was in love. Finding out I was pregnant should have been a good thing, but it wasn't. My boyfriend was in college as well, and neither of us had jobs that could support a baby. His parents found out that I was pregnant, and the overall consensus was that I should have an abortion. It wasn't something I wanted, but I had nowhere to go, no one to help me. I was alone. When you are in crisis, it's hard to make decisions that are well thought out or from a right frame of mind. How could I stand up to the feelings of self-doubt, loneliness, fear, confusion? I couldn't, and I didn't. Despite my instinct to have my baby, I caved to all those feelings. I woke up crying after the procedure. They said it was a normal reaction from the anesthesia. I knew better. I thought about the baby all the time. I had dreams about a toddler that looked like my boyfriend and I would always wake up crying. About five months after my abortion, I got the call that my nephew had passed away. He had died of SIDS. The rush of guilt that came was awful. I knew it was my fault. He died because of me. God was punishing me for what I did. I shared with my mom what I was feeling, and she said that pregnancy resource centers had counseling and that I should call them. When I met with the counselor, I shared all my feelings with her, and I remember her shaking her head and saying, no, that is not the way God works. God is not punishing you. God loves you. I couldn't understand that. How could God love someone that chose themselves over the life of their baby? And wouldn't this God want justification for what I did? 
I had a very small understanding of God. I had gone to Sunday school, heard the Bible studies, but I had no idea who God was. I gave my life to Jesus alone in my bedroom while talking to this God that supposedly loved me. I still didn't understand. At this point, it was more of a surrender of the mess I had made and the hope that he could do better than I had. I would like to tell you that my healing was instantaneous and that I figured it all out right away. But that really wouldn't be true of any of us, would it? I did have peace after I surrendered my life to Christ, but the healing came in bits and pieces. The more I have learned about who God is and who I am, the more the broken pieces of my heart have been put back together. God has always been there for me. He created me. He knows me. And he knew that I would sin. That's why he gave me and you, Jesus. His love was so great, is so great, that he poured it all out for what I did that day in the abortion clinic. What I have done other times that I have been sinful. He poured his love out for the abortion providers, for those that do not believe that life begins at conception, for those that fight for the right to abortion, for the judges that made abortion legal, for all the women that choose to abort. He poured his love out for each and every one of us. My heart is his because I am not sure I will ever grasp hold of how big his love is. When I was the most awful, ugliest, selfish, prideful, foolish version of myself, he loved me. And then, because he loves me, he healed me. Bit by bit, piece by piece, truth upon truth, he has helped me. I don't walk in shame over my abortion. I regret it, but there is no shame anymore. There is this peace that I cannot quite describe. The memories don't hurt anymore. They are just there to remind me of where I came from and who saved me. They remind me that others need to know about Jesus, his grace, his mercy, and his love, his overwhelming love. What a fitting testimony to coincide with pastor's message today, God's overwhelming love. I thank you so much for the opportunity to come and just share that with you. And I just welcome the opportunity to talk to you after the service. I'll be back in the lobby. God bless you, and just have a wonderfully Merry Christmas. Thank you so much. Praise God. Praise God. So today, church, with an incredible testimony like that, we're going to light this fourth candle on the Advent wreath. And as we light this candle of love, my prayer for you today is that if there's any area of your life where you have not encountered and experienced the love of God in such a practical and a tangible way, that you would not escape this atmosphere of faith and this service today without that moment of reality. You know, a couple weeks ago, through the month of November, we did a series where we actually took a lot of time to talk about the, the neurological science of words and how we think and how your words matter. In fact, the one week of that series, we, we even said words 
don't just matter, words are matter. As thoughts travel across uh, your mind, creating synapses that fire, those things begin to create neural pathways. And those neural pathways become the highways that your thoughts travel on. And, and so we talked about how you can have a thought something that was maybe impressed on you as an early child or something that was just hammered in by redundancy. And, and that thought becomes the prevailing thought for how you view the world, how you look at things. Maybe you had a thought that said, I'm, I'm not good enough. And so it seems it doesn't matter if it's your work or your marriage or, or raising kids or whatever it might be. The feeling is, I'm just not good enough. And so we talked about how your thoughts can come and uh, create concepts for the way you live. But what I want to say to you today about that is it doesn't really matter uh, how big the words or how significant the words are. Words alone don't create neural pathways in our minds. Those words were accompanied by an experience. Those words that you received were accompanied by an emotion, and there was something attached to it whether it was a real experience, a traumatic experience, like some of the ones that Laura described, or maybe it was just something uh, emotionally that you were dealing with. But how many of you know whether it was uh, physical or emotional, it was real? And it's those emotions that are attached to that experience that begin to hardwire our thinking. In fact, neural science would tell you concepts alone don't rewire the brain. When someone has had a toxic trauma, that brain wiring happened through an emotion-laden event. And if you're going to have your brain rewired, you need to have an emotion-laden event that is positive. So your reality is powerful. And we could argue all day about what's real. And a lot of people do. They argue. You know, say, well, that's not right. And they go, well, yes, it is. Well, no, that's not right. Well, yes, it is. And the reality is, whether it's right or not, it's your reality. Whether it's physical or emotional, it's true for you. And so what we need, first and foremost, is information. And thank God we have his word. But with information, we need an experience. We need an impartation. We need something that is a emotion-laden, positive experience with the word of God to actually change the way we look, but here's the problem. A true and a better word from God without a real encounter with that truth leaves you wrestling in your spirit between truth and reality. For example, if you're a person that you sit here today and you, you would say, you know, when I look at my life, I, I failed in my job. I failed in my marriage. I failed with my kids. The reality is you got a lot of reasons to say, I feel like a failure. And it's not going to help you a whole lot if I just say, the Bible says you're more than an overcomer. How many of you know that's not going to change your feeling about being a failure? It's a start. And you know what else? It's the truth. We are... <laughs> overcomers in Christ Jesus, but you need, if you're going to change your thinking from I'm a failure, how many of you understand you got to have a couple of emotional laden victories. You got to have some wins under your belt. You got to get some things right until all of a sudden through the process of obedience and faithfulness, God begins to rewire your thinking and your mind. I heard a testimony just this week of a pastor who went through some incredible atrocities as a child and he was gripped with fear. 
And even after a successful ministry for decades, he finally came to the place where the fear was so crippling, he checked himself in uh, to a rehabilitation center. And he said about that process, he said, I came to hate that verse of scripture in 1 John chapter 4 that says, perfect love casts out fear. He said, I hated that verse. And the reason he hated it is because he said, every time I would open up to share with a brother or a sister in the Lord, and I would say, you know, man, I'm, I'm really dealing with anxiety today. They would say, well, don't you know that verse, 1 John chapter 4, perfect love cast out fear. And he said, man, I wanted to thump them in the throat. <laughs> like, <laughs> because they don't understand what the verse means. The verse, perfect love casts out fear, doesn't mean saying the words, perfect love casts out fear, casts out fear. No, what that verse means is that an experience of God's perfect love in your life will cast out fear. How many of you know that's what we're talking, the difference between just having information and in having an experience with the word of God? And that is why love is so important in this Advent season. Because you need to have an encounter with the truth of God's word. You need to have some real experience, a feeling that will interrupt the feeling that you've had because of what's happened in your past or what you've thought in your past or what you even believe today. And love shows up. Love jumps in the messy middle. Love meets you right where you are. Love closes the gap. Love invades your, your life right where you are. And that's what we see in the gospel. In fact, I want you to look with me. <clears throat> look with me in Matthew's gospel, the first chapter. This is the portion of scripture where we meet Joseph, Mary's husband. Many of you will be turning to this very chapter in a few days to read the story for yourself, maybe with family and friends. But in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, we meet Joseph, and here's what it says about him. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. You know, when I read this story, I think our tendency is to want to believe the hallmark version of the story about Joseph. Go with me for a minute. It probably sounds something like this. Joseph was a great guy, probably wealthy. He's fallen head over heels for this young girl, Mary. He wants to marry her. He's given her a beautiful, big diamond engagement ring only to find out just before Christmas that she's pregnant with another man's child. Joseph's distraught. He's reeling in pain. We don't know what he's going to do, but out of the goodness of his heart, right? Because he's such a loving, perfect guy. He shows up and he swoops Mary off of her feet. He doesn't want her to spend Christmas alone. So he embraces her and snow begins to fall. And it's a beautiful Christmas moment, right? Because Joseph is just such a perfect, loving guy. That's the story we'd all love to believe. But I got to tell you, we can't believe that story. 
The Bible does not allow you to believe that version of the story. In fact, I want you to look at it with me and see exactly what happened. Verse 19 says, Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. You know, we love to portray our Bible characters on stained glass so that all the light and the glory shines through. And they look so perfect and pristine in that atmosphere. But can I tell you, the Bible doesn't afford us the privilege of doing that. When we read the word of God, we discover that these were real men and real women with real issues. And Joseph's feeling real hurt and real betrayal and real pain in this moment as he's making a decision about what he's going to do with this reality that Mary has just told him she is, <coughs> she is with child. Joseph's dealing with all, all of this. And for all the great things that we could say about him, and there's a lot of good things we could say about Joseph. For all of those wonderful things, we can talk about the man of God that the Lord chose to raise his only son. The reality is, at the end of the day, for Joseph and for you and me, by the way, our love falls short. All by itself, at the end of the day, our love falls short. And when we look at this story, we can see, it says there in verse 20, but after he had considered this, can we just stop right there for a second? Because I, I, I got to just imagine myself in the story. He, he didn't make a, a, a quick decision. He didn't just react. He thought about it. He, he considered it. Now, I don't know how your mind works, but I just have to believe Joseph probably considered a lot of things. I mean, wouldn't you think if, if, if he got that news, maybe the first thought that he considered was, what's his name? Where's he live? I'm going to go kick his teeth in. Right? Or who did this to you? Or, or maybe, maybe Joseph's thought was, you know, this is going to be embarrassing. This is going to be shameful. This is going to be humiliating. And, and I didn't do anything to deserve this. Maybe I'll just pack up the carpentry shop. Maybe I'll just load up the wagon tonight after the sun goes down. And, you know, I, I, I'm a skilled laborer. I can get, get work anywhere. I'll just skip town. I'll just, I'll just go down the road somewhere. You know, Nazareth is a small town, man. People will be talking about this for years. I'm just going to go start over. And I don't know if his thoughts were fight or flight, but he was considering a lot of things. And ultimately, Joseph considered to divorce her quietly. Now, here's, here's what we know about Joseph. We know from verse 19 that he loved God and he loved Mary. Look at it again. It tells us, verse 19, Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. That was, that was, the, that was the basis of his relationship with God. He loved God's law, and it says he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. Honestly, can you ask much more of a person than that? He loved God, and he loved Mary. I mean, when Jesus himself was asked, what's the greatest commandment in all the Bible, what did he say? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. In other words, Jesus said, the greatest thing you can do to keep the commands, love God and love people. 
That's Joseph. That's, that's, that's the man we meet here in Matthew 1.19. He loves God, and he loves people. So Joseph, loving the truth of God and loving Mary, tries to make a rational, biblically informed decision. What do I do with the reality that I'm now facing? When he went to bed that night, he knew one thing. Mary's pregnant, and it ain't mine. That's all he knew. She's going to have a baby, and it's not mine. But that's what he knew before he had an encounter. That's what he knew before the breath of heaven came into the room. And that's what I want you to grab a hold of today. That there's a difference in knowing the word of God and in knowing the God of the word. He goes to sleep knowing nothing except Mary's pregnant. But look with me at what happens next. Verse 20 again. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So Joseph wakes up with some new knowledge. It's a boy. Not only is it a boy, you're going to name him. Now, you got to understand, naming rights was an exclusive right for the father. Now, Joseph knows this is not his child biologically, but the angel of the Lord told him, you are going to name him. And not only are you going to name him, you're going to name him Jesus. Now, every Jew understood what the name Jesus meant. It was the common derivative of Joshua, which meant it was Yeshua. And in case maybe Joseph missed that class, the angel said very clearly to him, you're going to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Joseph has an encounter with the God of heaven, and he wakes up with a new reality. Look at verse 24 with me. It says, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. I have to kind of laugh when I read that verse. You know, that, that just means that, that Joseph was a virgin. You know, we always talk about the Virgin Mary. Why does anybody ever say Virgin Joseph? Like, give the guy some credit. You know what I mean? Like, he held out, man. It's a man of God right here. But listen. Listen to the last phrase, and I feel like it's so critically placed there. The Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to end this chapter with these words in verse 25. And he gave him the name Jesus. In, in other words, that statement all by itself communicates to us that in that moment, Joseph acknowledged the truth of what God had said. He, he could have said, you know, I'm going to do the right thing and, and I'm going to raise this kid, but I'm going to name him. I'm going to name him after me. You know, we got to cover this story or something like I'm going to No, he, he said 
He is the Messiah. When he named him Jesus, he said he will save his people from their sins. Joseph was saying in that moment, I acknowledge and recognize that this is the son of God, that Mary's conception was supernatural and not idolatrous, and that he will save his people from their sins. He called him Jesus. And I wonder today, what do you call him? Oh, I know you got the right church answer. I mean, you've been paying attention. I know you know, but I'm not talking about what does the word say. I mean, in your heart of hearts, when you peel back the layers to the emotional level, to the, to the, to the thoughts, what do you call him? Because for Joseph to call his name Jesus, <laughs> he needed more than somebody to quote him a verse. He needed an encounter with God. And the good news is, God gave him that. He didn't leave him to struggle. He didn't leave, you know, Mary had this angelic visitation and this great conversation, and, and with, all, with God all things are possible, but God didn't leave Joseph to struggle. He had an encounter with God. And can I tell you today, you don't just need a verse of Scripture. You need an encounter with the God of Scripture. Even Jesus needed that. Now think about the implications of what I'm saying right now. Jesus, John says, is the word of God. If anybody knew the word of God, it's the living word of God. Jesus is the word of God. And yet in his moment of need, he needed an experience with God to, to push him through the pain of what he was facing. I want you to go with me to Luke chapter 22. And let me set the scene as you find your place. This is... <clears throat> this is in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is after the Last Supper with the disciples. In just a few hours, Jesus will face a mock trial and the whipping post and the scourging, and then he'll carry a cruel cross up Golgotha's hill. He'll die for the sins of the world, and at this point, he knows it. He knows it, and so at the end of supper, they sang a hymn, and he said to his disciples, let's go out into the olive grove for a season of prayer. And the disciples went and they found a place of prayer and Peter, James, and John went a little farther with Jesus and then Jesus went a stone's throw farther into the garden. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, this is the prayer that Jesus prayed. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. The cup that Jesus was talking about was the cup of God's wrath that must be poured out on the sins of the world. The cup that he was talking about was suffering. The cup of the penalty of sin, my sin and your sin. Here's Jesus saying, God, if there's any other strategy that maybe you, 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 know, you wanted me to feel the full weight of humanity and so you didn't want to let me in on the full plan, this would be a good time to tell me the full plan. I mean, if there's any way that we can save the world without me carrying a cross and being nailed to it, I'm up for plan B. You ever prayed a Gethsemane prayer? You ever been in a place in your life where you just said, look, God, if you, can come, if you got another plan, I would like to hear that because I don't like where my life is. I don't like where things are going, and, and I don't really want to keep moving down the road that I'm going. You ever prayed that prayer? I know I have. God, let this cup pass from me. 
But the bigger question today is, can you finish that kind of prayer the way that Jesus finished his prayer? He said, yet, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, Jesus is saying, God, I, I, in my flesh, in my humanity, I, I don't want things to go the way that they're going. There's nothing about me that desires pain and, and punishment. There's nothing about my life that wants to go and face the crucifix. But God, I want your will more than I want mine. And so not my will, but yours be done. And I want you to know, in that verse, in that moment, in the garden, a verse of scripture is not what got Jesus through that experience. I want you to look at the next verse. I want you to see what happened in this moment. Luke 22, verse 43. It says this, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. I don't know if you ever noticed that verse before. Did you know that Jesus needed to be strengthened in that moment? That knowing who he was, that knowing what God had said about him, that having grown up in church his whole life, in this crisis moment, all of those truths by themselves were not enough to push him through that point of pain. Jesus needed to be strengthened in that moment. I don't know about you, that makes me feel pretty good about myself. I mean, I, I can kind of beat myself up sometimes when I feel one way and in my mind I know better. You know, and, and I, I know better. I, I shouldn't feel this way. I know better. I shouldn't talk like that. I shouldn't think like that. I know what the Bible says. I, I've preached this before. I know what I should feel. I feel pretty good about the fact today that when Jesus was wrestling with the most difficult situation of his life, the Father sent an angel to strengthen him. The same way he showed up for Joseph. When Joseph was in, in a crisis moment, he loves God. He loves Mary. I got to make a decision. I, I, I got to come up with a solution. I, I never planned for this. I never anticipated this. But I, I need to do something. And, and Joseph was ready to make a biblically informed, ethical decision when he went to sleep that night. Biblically informed, ethical decision. And for some of you, you're considering some things, and, and, and that's, that's what you're considering. You're saying, you know, God, I, I never wanted things to go this way. I never thought it would happen like this. But I, I, now I got I to deal with the cards I've been dealt. You need to hear me today. A biblically informed, ethical decision is not necessarily the same thing as knowing the will of God. I said it's not the same thing. The reality is God may have a greater purpose in your pain. The reality is God may have a greater purpose in your disappointment. In what you look at as, as failure, God may want to use to paint a beautiful picture of his glory through your life. And so you can wrestle and say, I, I, I got to consider some things. And, and hopefully you're considering what God's word says. Hopefully you're making a biblically informed decision. And hopefully you're trying to make a decision that's, that's right in the eyes of God and, and right in the eyes of people. You love God. You love people. But let me tell you, what we need is for God to send his presence and strengthen you in this moment. 
That's what God wants to do. If you're here today and you've been wrestling with God, you've been wrestling with truth versus reality, and, and you're considering some things today, I want to invite you to experience an encounter with the Spirit of the living God. Because love not only came in a manger, love is here. And me telling you God loves you might put a smile on your face. But you feeling and experiencing the love of God will change your life. Like that woman who showed up in Laura's office and said, for 41 years I've been carrying secret pain. You know you don't have to live your life like that. God is madly in love with you. And if you'll open your heart to him, he'll show up and strengthen you the way that Joseph was strengthened and given clarity, the way that Jesus was strengthened in the garden. He may not change your circumstances, but he'll change your outlook. He'll rewire the way you see it. I want to invite the worship team to come back, and in just a moment, they're going to sing a song that just simply invites the presence of the Lord into this moment. But as they come, I, I want to tell you something that happened even as recent as this past Wednesday. We were having our midweek prayer gathering, the last one for the year. We won't be meeting on Christmas. That's a Wednesday, but the last one for 2019. And we were all in this section over here, and we were praying about some things that we just felt like were locked up in our life, things that we just didn't have victory over, and we wanted God to set free before we move into the new year. And someone in that prayer gathering said, for me, it's joy. I just, I need joy. And so several of the brothers began to gather around and, and pray over him. And, and as we prayed, the Lord spoke a word into my heart. And it was John chapter 15. And, and the word that God spoke to me in that moment was, was Jesus' words. He said, this is my command, that you love one another. And in that, Jesus gave the reason. He said, so that your joy may be full. And God just made it so clear to me in that moment. I said, Here, here's the word for you. See, we, we don't have joy just because Jesus said, I want your joy to be full. He said, this is my command, that you love one another and your joy will be full. I said, Here, here's what you need. You don't need to just ask for joy. You need to experience joy. You need to actually bring joy to other people. You need to be a part of joy. See, it's not just saying, I need joy, I need joy, I need joy, I need joy. No, it's getting outside of yourself and experiencing the joy of the Lord to strengthen you. And today, if you're here and you say, you know, I, I, I need something from the Lord. I can keep quoting scripture to you. I got a lot of them. But the Holy Spirit wants to just move into this atmosphere where faith is and encounter you with his love encounter you with his joy, encounter you with his peace, give you his hope today. Not just information, an impartation of all that God has for you. 
so that somehow in the midst of a situation that you might have come in here saying, God, if there's any way possible, take this from me, the strengthening of the Lord will come so that you can stand up under it and bear whatever cross or whatever burden that God has for you to carry. Maybe you're here today and like Joseph, you say, I I don't know how to make this work, whatever this is for you. And maybe you've considered a lot of things. In a moment, God can give you clarity. So I want to invite you to stand with me.